pharmacy is transforming and this transformation is having a major impact on patient care and patient treatment outcomes. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare providers throughout the country, and we are taking on more responsibilities as our roles continue to expand. Pharma Salon and the Pharmacy Podcast Network are hosting the first RX Influencer Salon, all about trends and opportunities in healthcare led by pharmacists. The RX Influencer Salon will be a live event taking place in St. Louis on October 24th and 25th. This event will feature four key conference tasks, including compounding, business growth and alternative revenue streams, cannabis, and pharmacogenomics. Led by pharmacists, this salon offers you the opportunity to learn through conversation. You will have the opportunity to learn strategies to help you build your business, excel in your career, and expand your knowledge of the upcoming opportunities in healthcare in a way no other conference provides. Sign up today by visiting pharmasalon.com forward slash rx influencer. That's pharmasalon.com forward slash rx influencer. Pharmacists today are some of the most influential providers in healthcare. So sign up today and join us in St. Louis at the Rx Influencer Salon. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Physician Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland. I'm a licensed pharmacist and second year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. Most pharmacy students and professional graduates are aware of the possibility of going to medical school, but very few actually take the leap. We are here to unpack some of these details and open your eyes to the possibility of a career in both pharmacy and medicine. In today's show, we will, be, we will cover topics related to applying to medical school, an in-depth look at osteopathic medicine, the importance of research, not only for pharmacists, but for medical students alike, introduce national medical boards, and finish up with expectations for clinical rotations. I'm very excited for our second episode of the Physician Pharmacist Podcast mini-series, where we will be interviewing Dr. Bryce Grohall, a second-year medical student and good friend of mine from pharmacy school. Dr. Grohall first began his journey by attending Duquesne University, where he completed his pharmacy doctorate in 2020. Upon graduation, he elected to continue his healthcare training by receiving his his medical education at Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Virginia. He is almost done with his second year of medical school and has begun preparation for our first set of national medical boards, formerly known as USMLE Step 1 and the Comlex. Welcome, Dr. Grohall. Hey, uh, Dr. Gartland, good to be on. Um, so as I said, my name is Bryce Grohall. Um, I'm a pharmacist graduating uh, from Duquesne University in 2020, uh, originally from Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, now located in Lynchburg, Virginia. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you for joining the show today. Um, we're just gonna start out with a few general questions and then we'll kind of work through the episode um, and you know address some of the points that we covered in the beginning. Um, so now that we've heard a little bit about you, let's start unpacking some of the details of, you know, in your origin story. What got you started with pharmacy in the first place? 
So I feel like a lot of people who get into the medical field uh, in high school, uh, I was always good at science and math. Um, I feel like the natural progression is their first thought is obviously something in the medical field, um, not necessarily pharmacy or medicine necessarily, but something in that uh, area. Um, pharmacy offered a little bit of an expedited route, uh, only six years at most schools. Um, it came with a fairly prestigious title, a doctorate, and a, a pretty good starting salary. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of part of the reason, you know, how, how I started with the pharmacy in the first place as, as well. So, you know, was going to medical school then always like your plan? It seems like you were focused more on pharmacy for that, you know, initial period of time. So to be honest, I always had an interest in medicine. Um, I remember being a uh, freshman and a sophomore at Duquesne University, uh, we, where I was doing some volunteering at a hospital. They were, it was a requirement for Duquesne University undergrads. Um, and I remember seeing uh, the physicians, the residents on rounds, doing their thing in their offices. And I always, honestly, I was always really in awe about that. I thought it was so cool. But it, once again, it, I didn't want to dedicate that much of my life to studying. I always thought, you know, I don't want to be in school until I'm in my mid-30s. Um, so I kind of pushed it to the back of my mind. Uh, fast forward a couple of years when I'm on our introductory rotations, it was my IPI too, actually. Um, I was in the ICU at one of the nearby uh, University of Pittsburgh hospitals. Um, and when we were rounding in the ICU and the team, uh, I kind of watched the residents, the fellows, and the attendings interact. Uh, it was kind of sort of an epiphany where it was like, wow, like that's what I want to do. Like this is it. Um, it wasn't something I was looking for or something I expected. Um, it kind of really just came out of nowhere. Was there, from, there was on there, out, from there on out, you know, that was that was it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, was there anything in particular that like really solidified it or was it just the cohesiveness and like the hands on part of medicine that, you know, really invigorated you to like pursue this particular career? So it was kind of the going back and forth between the attending and I, I believe he was the acute care fellow at the time. Um, it was kind of just their open discussion they had with each other where they were guiding how the rounds were going. Um, the pharmacist was important, the nursing staff was important, but you know, these were the guys, they were in charge, they were making the medical decisions and they were the one kind of using their expertise to really guide the treatment of the patient. And that's something that really appealed to me and something that I didn't realize that was important to me until I kind of saw it in action for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of using that your pharmacy knowledge and background to kind of take that level of care to the next step is, you know, super important as well. Um, so additionally, you know, let's kind of look into your medical school application period because we, you know, both of us went through this at the same time um, and we did it during our pharmacy tenure. And, you know, that was had a whole bunch of you know pitfalls and, and issues with that. But um, so let's talk a little bit about applying to medical school. Um, we already addressed some of the application logistics in our first episode of the series with Dr. Timothy Dew, um, but I'd like to further this discussion, you know, with your own reflection and expertise. So when did you apply? What roadblocks did you overcome? And how did you tackle the MCAT? So I applied, uh, I, I submitted my application, it was around June or July in the summer between my, my fifth year and my sixth year. So I would say uh, I started working on my application just before clinical rotations and our appies started your sixth year. Um, I would say, honestly, the largest roadblock, I would say, wasn't even the MCAT. Um, I'll touch on that here in a second. But I would say the biggest issue is realizing that I all of a sudden had to build a CV. Um, I was not extremely involved in pharmacy school because I'm sure, as a lot of you watching this know or listening to this know, is that in pharmacy, unless you're interested in an extremely competitive residency program, 
it, it's it's kind of a little bit more completion-esque. Um, you don't really need a really high GPA to get into a lot of different uh, pharmacy fields, um, specifically retail. Uh, being involved in organizations is kind of fulfilling and can be fun, but it's not as important. Um, unless you're looking for that high-level residency, it is, it is more of a completionist thing um, where, you know, if you're applying to medical school, it is very um, important based on your research, your, your volunteering, your grades, things like that. So kind of overcoming those first two years where I really wasn't terribly involved, that was a challenge. Um, moving on to the MCAT. The MCAT was a challenge, but I would say it was more so for a challenge because we had to navigate it while we were involved in the rigorous pharmacy curriculum. Um, I can honestly say that pharmacy was just as hard, if not more difficult, than I found medical school to be. So finding time to tackle an exam as enormous and uh, just intimidating as the MCAT while also trying to keep up my grades in pharmacy school, that was a very large challenge. Um, I found myself doing 14, 15 hours of studying a day, seven days a week for probably five to six months straight. Um, and that, that, became, that became exhausting after time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely can uh, reminisce of those uh, fun, fun late night uh, library sessions. Um, and you said a lot of good stuff in there and that I want to unpack real quick. <clears throat> and just to clarify for the audience, you know, when it comes to medical school applications, most um, most of you might not be aware that it's actually a year long process. Um, so it need, you basically have to have your whole application set up and prepared ahead of time in comparison to maybe something like a residency, like a pharmacy residency that you, can be done, you know, obviously through the tenure of your school as you get research projects and so, and so on and, you know, work on your grades. But the actual application period is relatively short compared to the medical school process. Um, yeah, I love that. And then especially with the MCAT, you know, that's a very important medical school metric that a lot of, you know, pharmacists and, you know, regular medical, you know, applicants overlook in the sense that they think this test is something that can be shooed away from. And it really isn't, um, you know, that we had ended up having to take the exam twice. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about, you know, our, our first and second attempts at the MCAT? Yeah. So uh, me and Dr. Garland here kind of had a, had a time on the first MCAT go around. Um, we both, I think, largely underestimated it. Um, I, we had I had never taken an exam like that before. I didn't realize the level of uh, importance weighed upon not only you know the, the the facts and the details of all the different body systems, but really just taking the exam. Um, getting used to an eight-hour exam is not something that uh, that should be overlooked because I would argue that is far more important than the information itself. Um, I, I believe I don't took a, I think I might have taken a single full-length practice exam prior to taking it the first time. Um, and obviously, uh, <laughs> as, as we discussed, I took it twice. So the first exam score did not go too well. Um, the second time around, I believe I took somewhere in the neighborhood of nine or 10 full length exams. Um, and obviously seeing that I'm in medical school now, it kind of went a little bit better than the first time. Uh, so definitely would recommend, um, uh, taking more time to practice questions and practice full length exams. <laughs> Yeah, I'd 100% agree with that. You know, folk, for anyone interested in, you know, pursuing medicine, focus on the MCAT. Uh, it's going to be your primary, you know, barrier to entry for a lot of medical schools, considering you have the pharmacy background and, and life experience that a lot of other applicants might not have. Um, so moving, moving on, uh, how many programs did you end up applying to? And what would you recommend students apply to more or less of the, the number that you picked? 
So I'm in a fairly, I was in a fairly unique situation. Um, my GPA coming out of pharmacy school was not great. Um, you will be evaluated with your GPA side by side as someone who did philosophy as an undergraduate or psychiatry. So where they were getting a 4.0, you know, taking general science courses for four years, we were taking pharmaceutics and all these, these clinical body system pharmaceutical courses with high level biology chemistry. So in, they don't really give you a little too much slack. So my GPA was on the lower end. Um, at the same time, I also had an academic integrity um, from my freshman year. So that's something that weighed negatively on my application a lot. So that being said, getting back to the question, I applied to a lot of programs. Um, I believe it was something around 15 osteopathic programs and 40 allopathic programs. That is far more than the average student. Um, I believe the average is somewhere between 18 and 20 for the normal applicant. But like I said, that's something that you would need to tweak to your application, your strengths, weaknesses, um, as far as if you're, are you willing to move across the country? Do you want to stay where you are? It's, it's a very personalized decision, I would say. I think it's funny too. There was a, a point in time where we would add another program pretty much every other week. And then you would text me, oh, I just added this program. And I would be, you know, very pressured to, to also add that program. So we we're probably building off of each other a little bit there. <laughs> um, so definitely, yeah, like you're definitely right. The amount of most applicants apply around 18 to it's, it's raising. So around 25 ish as well. Um, but there's no perfect number. I think it depends a lot on like the statistics of the individual, um, so additionally, you know, applying to medical school has a lot of moving parts, but one feature that is commonly overlooked are letters of recommendation. How many letters of recommendation should applicants get? And do students need a DO letter, uh, you know, from a physician, uh, like a letter of recommendation from an osteopathic physician for like admittance to an osteopathic program? Because this is uh, something that I came across and it, it held me up in some areas. So once again, that's it's it's not really a clear cut answer. You know, you're going to have to do a lot of research about individual programs because every medical school has their own requirements. Some are very easy and vague. Well, they'll say, hey, just give us three letters from faculty at your school. No, nothing more specific. Some will say, hey, you need five letters. One is science. One is non-science. One needs to be a principal investigator for a research project. One needs to be an administrator um, and one needs to be a physician. So it really depends on the school. Um, overall, I believe I had six or seven total because you can pick and choose which letters you send to which programs. Um, so overall, I'd recommend you get two science faculty. I would say one non-science faculty. I would get a letter from a research faculty member, um, a letter from an administrator in your school if you're close with any of them. Um, I would also recommend getting two physician letters if you are applying to osteopathic programs. And I'll touch on the osteopathic one in a moment here, but definitely I, if you can, one allopathic and one osteopathic would be best. Um, as far as needing an osteopathic letter for their program specifically, that's also going to depend on which schools you apply to. A large number of schools do require um, a letter from an osteopathic physician, uh, but I would say it's not an overwhelming majority. I would say probably about 60%. The other 40%, however, they strongly recommend it. Um, so is it a requirement for those programs? Absolutely not. Um, however, if you're looking to get into medical school, you, you don't really want to lower your chances any more than you have to. So if possible, it's, it's definitely better. You're better off to try to get one. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, I think the, the general recommendation is to get approximately five. Um, and then obviously the more letters you get, the better, because, you know, you can pick and choose, like you mentioned, of which programs they go to, or if you know that you have a very strong research letter, that might be something that you utilize for a heavier research um, program, heavier, you know, emphasis on research on their application. 
Um, so you also mentioned a little bit too uh, with Appy rotations. You know, I, I guess with Ippies that was influential and in, you know kind of in figuring or helping you direct yourself towards you know a pathway in medicine. Was there anything that you experienced on Appy rotation specifically that furthered your interest in medical school? I would say, yeah, as I went through my rotations, I would say my overall interest in medicine definitely increased. It kind of, I felt like it would verified what I had learned in my, in my second introductory rotation. Um, I felt like I had made the correct decision, um, not only because uh, I didn't really enjoy the pharmacy aspect as much. There's no doubt that pharmacists have an immense importance in the medical field and patient care. Um, I think a lot of physicians would be lost without their pharmacists on call in a lot of hospitals. Uh, that being said, it wasn't specifically for me as, you know, I, as I, I, because I am where I am obviously now. Um, that being said, as far as specific specialties, I would say that there's nothing of my, in my appies that steered me towards a specialty, but it definitely steered me away from a few. Um, just for example, um, I, I loved our oncology class, um, when I took it in pharmacy school. Um, I thought that that was going to be a really, a really high, a really, uh, strong interest for me going into medicine. Um, I, and then I did a, a clinical oncology rotation at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and hated it. Um, <laughs> it was depressing. It was just absolutely not something I could see myself doing. Um, and I think I realized that I liked the course professor, the, the professor who taught us more than I liked the information. So that was a little bit of a, a difference there. So it's something that I've definitely realized is not in my future. So it, there was that benefit of my rotations. Yeah, and that's exactly what rotations are for is to kind of check off a few things. You might not find the perfect match, you know, when you, you know, advance through those particular rotations, but you will definitely cross some, some things off the list. It's funny because I remember, you know, my Hopkins rotation and I absolutely loved my oncology, you know, rotation, but you're the opposite of that. But I also hated cardiology. So it just kind of goes both ways. And that's something, you know, I know you're interested in. All right, so let's take uh, a few minutes and talk about osteopathic medical schools um, and unpack some of the ambiguities you know, of osteopathic medical education. I'm sure some of the listeners are curious to explore the differences between this field and traditional like allopathic medicine, such as MD credentials. To some, the credentials DO are a mystery despite their abundance and equal ability to practice under law. Could you give us a, sh a short overview about the profession? So honestly, the simplest way to put it is the osteopathic physician and the allopathic physician, there's, there's no difference clinically. Um, the real difference comes in is that osteopathic physicians are required to complete, and it's going to change depending on the school, somewhere between three to 400 hours of osteopathic manipulative medicine practice when you're in school. Um, so if, and if that has its benefits, um, however, it does make things a little bit more time consuming. Um, less time to study for boards, less time to study for courses. Um, so it, it can be a bit of a negative depending on who you talk to. But that, that really, I would say, is the, is the only true difference. In practice, um, I don't know if any of the listeners have a lot of experience in the hospitals. However, a lot of the time, the physician's name tags will just say physician. You won't even know if they're an MD or a DO. There's actually been a few times I remember from Appies where um, the physician's name tag said MD, and I looked them up to see where they went to school, and they went to an osteopathic medical school. Um, so there's really just after medical school, after rotation, um, uh, the ambiguity between them really is, is almost non-existent at most institutions. 
And you mentioned this additional training. Um, I believe it's called like osteopathic manipulative medicine or um, something along those lines, OMM. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is exactly? I, I know that it's a hands-on approach to, to medical care, um, but you know, could you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so osteopathic manipulative medicine is basically the hands-on portion of what you will learn as an osteopathic physician. I would describe it best as a hybrid between physical therapy and chiropractic. Um, it's a little bit a little bit more of the milder aspects of chiropractic. Um, it's a lot of range of motion. It's a lot of uh, telling, uh, looking at tissue texture changes, um, looking at displacement of muscles, bones, things of that nature. And really, what it is is you're basically looking for a simple way to treat a patient's condition without prescribing medications, without ordering expensive tests. Something you can do right there in the office. That if it solves their problem, phenomenal. And if it doesn't, you still have all the tools that an allopathic does to continue on with their treatment. Um, so that's really the best way I can describe it. It's kind of just a first step therapy that in the right situation, it can maybe be advantageous. And other times, like I said, you can kind of just move on and treat them as any physician would. And it's not used in every situation. Um, obviously if the patient comes in with difficulty breathing and heart palpitations, you're not going to be looking to treat them with OMM. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, as a, a fellow pharmacist, I can understand, you know, avoiding, medications as much as possible because we know all the side effects that are associated with them and polypharmacy is a major problem so looking for alternatives that might be more effective before we non-pharmacologic you know alternatives is definitely an important facet of uh, medical care um so i've also heard some arguments that osteopathic medical students have a harder time matching into competitive competitive specialties how true is this statement and is there truly a disadvantage or is this more of an antiquated viewpoint so it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a give and take. Um, overall, the answer would be yes. It is it is harder to match into a competitive specialty as an osteopathic student. Um, I think the word I think the words more different the phrase more difficult has morphed into impossible in some circles. Um, I have spent my fair share of time on studentdoctor.net and Reddit, and you will see a lot of misinformation on there and. Like I said, in general, yes, it is more competitive, but that is far from impossible. Um, just recently in our last class, we had uh, this, this past match a couple weeks ago, we had two students match into dermatology, two into orthopedic surgery, and somebody re matching into radiation oncology. Um, so there really isn't any specialties that are off limits. It's just gonna require a little bit of harder work. It's gonna require a little bit more perseverance. Um, and to, but to be honest, if you're motivated and it's something you want to do, it really shouldn't be a problem. Um, I personally am interested in orthopedic surgery, and really, uh, I'm doing everything I can to make that possible. Extracurriculars, research grades, um, and I truly believe that it's not going to be an issue for me. Um, on the flip side of it being more competitive, it also, in some resident, in some specific residency programs, it's almost easier because you do have the traditionally osteopathic-only residencies. Um, Prior to the merger with the NRMP, uh, or I forget the actual name of the organization, but the merger with MD and DO residencies, technically MDs can apply to those residencies, but historically, and even after the merger, uh, they, they do traditionally take DOs only. So you do have a fair number of spots that are almost reserved for, back of a, for lack of a better word. Um, so there is opportunity. Yeah, and I think a lot of that information, that misinformation that you were discussing is an antiquated viewpoint in the sense that 
it's been many, many years since that data has been, you know, pushed out there. And I think programs are becoming a lot more accepting of having, you know, DOs on, on staff and they're becoming equal, basically professions, not to say that they weren't equal before, but, um, you know, when it comes to matching into some of the more prestigious hot, like, um, traditional medicine, uh, residency positions. So I think within the next 10 years, you know, there will be no di distinction between them, uh, which is, you know, a, a wonderful thing. Um, so let's take a minute and transition over to research. Um, so similar to pharmacy school, medical students are expected to get involved in academic research to help bolster their future residency applications. I have been a major proponent for working as a pharmacist while in medical school to stay up on my license and generate some additional income. Because of this, I'll, I'll admit that I've been much less involved in research during my tenure. While I still feel there's ample time to get involved, I, I wish I had gotten involved a little bit sooner uh, to have some more projects under my belt. I know you personally ch uh, have chosen to work a little less to, to forward your research aspirations. So my question for you is, how was your pharmacy background helped you conduct research? And why is research so important during medical school? So I, I would like to preface and say that um, I have not worked um, during my time in medical school. I am licensed in the state of Virginia. I could go work in a retail pharmacy if I wish to. And I would also like to say that I could um, with the time constraints. There'd be no reason that I couldn't pick up one or two shifts a week and make that entirely possible while still being successful in medical school. I have chosen not to just because with my interest in orthopedic surgery, I felt like I kind of needed to dedicate all of my time to schoolwork, research, extracurriculars, grades, things of that nature. Um, with research specifically, I feel that my pharmacy background in completing the research, I would say it hasn't really had much of a benefit either way or a negative. I think where it's helped is kind of seeking out research projects. Um, I, coming from a pharmacy school and coming from a similar uh, doctorate program, you realize, you know, how to find projects, what's the best way to go about doing things, um, how to network and work your way into different avenues of research. And that's something that I didn't really have to learn. It was something I already came in with that knowledge base. And I'm sure there are students who didn't go to pharmacy school who had that knowledge as well. Um, however, that's just how I personally felt it helped me the most. It, it wasn't kind of walking into it wasn't, I wasn't walking in blindly. I felt like I had a good background to build on on how to find projects, how to network, and how to really make the most of my situations. Um, as far as research being important in medical school, I would say it really, it's about, my answer is going to change based on what specialty you're interested in. Um, I would recommend everyone does some sort of research because in the end, you don't want to get to your third years, realize that you love surgery or dermatology, and then realize, hey, I didn't do anything yet, um, so I better get it in gear. So I'd recommend finding something. However, that's not saying that everyone needs to go out, have seven posters, four publications, and you know, five more being written as manuscripts currently. Yeah, so it's going to be very person dependent. Absolutely. And it, yeah, like you said, it's, it's very dependent on the particular uh, interest that you have and what kind of specialty you want to pursue later on. I know for orthopedics, I, I believe the, the most recent data suggested that applicants who match need about five uh, research projects. Uh, it doesn't really define if it's a publication or, you know, presentations or just being un involved in a project. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty big number to, to, to kind of meet and match. And obviously you want to be above the average uh, when it comes to competitive specialties like vascular surgery or radiation oncology, like you mentioned, or even dermatology. Um, so uh, definitely being on top of that and using your, your pharmacy background is, is 
very helpful when it comes to finding projects. I think a lot of it too comes from, um, like you said, the professionalism component, you know how to approach a lot of the uh, research coordinators, um, as well as the, just having the, that PharmD behind your name. It's uh, essentially like some credentialing um, and that you're basically a shoe in for any kind of uh, medication based project. You know, they want you on this project. Oh, you're a medical student and you're a pharmacist. Wow. You know, this is perfect. It's meant to be. So I think that's also a, a very helpful feature. Um, so transitioning on. Um, so essentially, it's difficult to work on projects, obviously, during the semester. Is there anything you know you would recommend to pharmacy students or medical students, you know, how do they balance doing research while doing good in school? Yeah, so I would honestly, my first recommendation is don't do research your first semester. Um, I know some people do, and there's a lot of people who are good students who can manage both. However, everyone in undergrad thinks that they're gonna get into medical school and knock its socks off. They think they're gonna be the top of their class. And in reality, I think, as a pharmacy student, you're a little bit more prepared in this avenue because you've already dealt with a rigorous course load. However, a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is. You can hear other people's perspectives, but in the end, you have to really experience it to know that, hey, you're going to be studying 80 hours a week, like at least some people will. Some people can get away without doing that. However, so I would get your footing first academically. Find out what works for you, how to study the best with the least amount of time, being the most productive with the time that you're putting in. Once you go from there, you can find time to work in your research projects. Um, a lot of projects are not gonna take up 20, 30 hours a week. Um, I know a lot of my projects require me to do maybe two, three hours a week. Um, and then obviously that can give or take depending on what's going on. But really, like I said, just find out what works best for you academically and studying. And then you can kind of figure out how much time can I divulge to research? Um, when can I do it? Maybe if you have an exam coming up, maybe make it a little bit less effort. Um, but like I said, it really, the first thing you got to do is, is find out, you know, how, how to go about your academics the best way you can. Yeah. And always having research projects not only helps, you know, your application to medical school, but it also will help your application for pharmacy residencies. If you're not particularly interested in medicine, or you might be interested in medicine two, three years, you know, outside of school. So it's important, you know, when you have those resources to, to take advantage of them, reach out to uh, research coordinators, reach out, reach out to your faculty and seek out those opportunities because they're, they're there. They might just be tucked away. Um, awesome. So I think we're ready to transition to our next uh, big topic, which is uh, discussing step one. Um, and step one, to clarify, is the USMLE step one exam, which is our basically the first of three national licensure examinations required to practice medicine. This is essentially like a NAPLEX, but during the middle of medical school. So traditionally speaking, um, your score would serve as a major qualifier to make you competitive for a specialty of interest. Just this year, there was a massive decision to make the exam pass fail. So what is on this exam and how, how much do medical students typically need to study for it? How, do, how would you compare it to the NAPLEX um, to put it in perspective for our listeners? So in comparing it to an exam, I would say it's far closer to, well, for people who haven't taken the MCAT, I, I would compare it way closer to the MCAT than I would to NAPLEX. But to, to kind of describe what is on the exam, I would say it's basically just a culmination of everything you've learned in your first two years of didactic curriculum. Um, it's very nitpicky, it's very detailed, and it's very disease or it's very 
disease oriented, I'll say for lack of a better term. Um, basically it's questions that will give you a list of symptoms, maybe some imaging, maybe some labs, and you'll basically have to come to the conclusion of, you know, what, what is this patient dealing with? Um, they'll throw in biochem, they'll throw in histology, things that aren't as clinical in nature, but are extremely important for physicians to understand and have a background um, for when they're making clinical decisions. Um, as far as how much you need to study, this is kind of a new, we're kind of shifting in a new direction here with uh, what we just discussed as being pass-fail, because prior to this, a lot of people studied for uh, five, six months, kind of full-time, because you wanted to get the best score possible. Now that this is shifting to pass-fail, getting that top-tier score isn't nearly as important, and it, quite frankly, is, isn't worth sacrificing your, your grades at your school. Um, me, personally, I try to allocate around 15 hours a week to studying. Um, that's going to basically depend on exams as well. So I just had a large exam the other day. Uh, the week prior, I didn't study at all just because it was, it was too time consuming to watching lecture and getting everything organized. However, this coming week is, or this week I'm currently in is a little bit more laid back. So I will probably allocate, I would probably say maybe 25 to 30 hours to kind of catch up and make up for that previously. Yeah, I think it's been a, a monumental decision to switch it to pass fail. Just, you know, from our perspective, it's much easier because we don't have to put in as much effort at the time. And I, I, I agree with the, the decision just because, like you mentioned, the material itself, it is more clinically minded, but a lot of it is very superficial clinical medicine. There's not as strong of an emphasis on medications. It's very nitpicky, like you mentioned, as well as there's a lot of histology. Um, for our listeners, histology is essentially cells. Uh, it's not something you you get exposed to quite a bit in uh, pharmacy school. So when that when I had my first histology class, I was pretty confused at what, what was happening. We were looking at like microscope slides. Um, so uh, it's pretty you know useful for a pathologist perspective because that's how we make a lot of diagnoses um, based off of like cellular pathology. But that's also something that we're tested on, um, which I don't think is completely relevant, especially when you know ninety percent of the people graduating. I'd say ninety nine percent of medical students who are graduating are not going to be pathologists. So I don't know why we have to look at, you know, cells in a Petri dish. Um, but that's my two cents. <laughs> um, so as an osteopathic medical student, do you take different boards than the USMLE? Uh, step one. So yes and no. So to be licensed in the United States as an osteopathic physician, you are required to take complex. Um, I, what the acronym stands for is uh, slipping my mind at this exact moment, but basically it's the osteopathic equivalent of USMLE. Um, instead of step one, you take level one. Now, um, for the yes and no component, you are, like I said, you are required to take all three levels of complex, level one, two, and three. However, if you are interested in a specialty that is predominantly MD driven, which if we're being honest, are most of the more competitive ones, it's not mandatory, but it's almost in it's almost an informal rule that you should take USMLE as well. I will personally be taking both exams, and I recommend that any osteopathic medical students or pharmacy students applying to osteopathic medical school, I recommend you take USMLE in the future as well. Um, I hope that that will switch someday and that you want to take both sets of boards, but as of now, that's kind of a hand you're dealt if you want to remain competitive for a lot of these tough specialties. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting, too, that, that this decision to make it pass fail, it forces students to focus not so much on, you know, one single exam that defines their entire career and allows them to bolster their application, like we've mentioned already, through research, through a community involvement, through shadowing experiences, um, and obviously, you know, academic grades. So I think that's 
I think it's a good direction that we're, we're headed in, although we're the guinea pigs for this uh, experiment. So I might be, I might have a very different opinion in a couple of years. <laughs> All right, so gearing up for clinical rotations, we're going to switch over to our last topic of the day, um, which would be our medical school uh, clinical rotations. So unlike pharmacy, medical students start their clinical rotations during their third and fourth years. Some programs even are even starting rotations after just 18 months of education, so about a year and a half. Like most things, students tend to learn the best through hands-on experiences. Similar to appy rotations in pharmacy, medical students are expected to complete several mandatory experiences. Would you be able to briefly talk about the different rotations medical students take and how that would compare to appy rotations? Because for appy rotations, for example, we would do an acute care rotation versus, you know, how does that translate to medical school rotations? So to touch base a little bit on the structure of rotations, I would say the overall structure is similar to pharmacy school, where you have a set number of mandatory rotations that every student takes. Um, these are generally, for, for medical students, these are generally done during your third year, and they'll include things such as internal medicine, OBGYN, pediatric, surgery, family medicine. Um, and then depending on your school, you may get some elective rotations during your third year. I personally don't. Um, my entire third year schedule is picked for me. And then your fourth year, uh, you will get your chance to do your elective rotations. Um, as opposed to pharmacy, where only some people do residency, obviously medical students, everyone is required to do a residency to practice medicine. Um, so some of these elective rotations will be turned auditions or sub-internships, sub-I. Um, these are going to be rotations that you do at hospitals that have residency programs you're interested in. So it's basically just a two to four week job interview. Um, these are things you have to apply to and it, it, a lot of them will be the programs that you end up doing your residency at. So that's extremely important to take them as seriously as you can. 100%. And I, I actually appreciate that we start rotations a little bit earlier in the um, ed education process compared to pharmacy, which is in the final year. I, I enjoy that we, we started in our third year because it gives me more time to experience a lot of different fields and really hone, hone in on what kind of medicine, you know, field of medicine I'm interested in. So for instance, I'm starting surgery first this summer and I've never even been in an operating room before. So I think that's a great opportunity to, to really, I'm, I'm just going to get tossed to the wolves, but uh, it's, I mean, that's how you learn the best. So it's going to be a fun experience. Um, and I think it's a lot of different things that I might not have ever seen before, you know, versus I guess like appy rotations I, I was I was I had seen a lot of like the community-based pharmacy but with medicine there's a lot of different avenues that you can take like anesthesiology or explore some other more niche topics which I think is is pretty cool um so I guess for yourself you know what are you looking forward to most for upcoming rotations I know my priority right now is like yourself is studying for step one and getting that out of the way but once we start rotations what are you looking forward to the most Oh boy. So if I'm being honest, the first thing I'm looking forward to is not having class anymore. Um, <laughs> the second thing I'm looking forward to really is getting out there and back into the hospital. Um, if you're listening to this now, you might be just, you might be doing ippies or you might be in the middle of your appy rotations and don't take it for granted being out there in the clinics, uh, actually being able to practice medicine. Um, going from that environment back into a classroom is not fun. Um, and the burnout will hit you way quicker than it will most traditional students because you're on your eight at this point of higher education where most of them are on year four or five. 
Um, so really just looking forward to getting back out there, um, seeing patients, just being in the environment of a clinic or hospital, I would say. And I, I would agree with that 100% as well. Um, just getting out of the library, like you said, we're on year eight, we're, the, we're hardened veterans at this point. And, you know, I, I leave to the pharmacy and then I, you know, come back the next morning and I have like three hours of lecture, like in-person mandatory sessions. So that can definitely, uh, you know, hurt the morale just a little bit because um, I'm out here practicing and then I'm out here. We had rotations previously and we were basically operating, you know, as a pharmacist in these particular settings, obviously with supervision, but um, it's a very, you know, a very different field uh, to be in when you're actually on the wards. So it's, it's exciting. So I am looking forward to that aspect as well. <clears throat> um, so do you think your skills and training from pharmacy will help you excel on rotations? Oh, absolutely. Um, However, not in the ways, in my opinion, as much as you think. Um, having that background knowledge of that medication is inherently important, and it'll be something that will help you succeed. However, more importantly than that, I would say that, A, the, uh, the comfortability of being in a hospital, just knowing how to act and how to uh, attend rounds and kind of stay out of the way, but also stay involved, that's something that takes a while. And I'm sure Dr. Garland can... Uh, can attest, it's not something that you pick up on and really get good at until the end of your happy year, where you kind of really start to get into a groove and figure out what you're doing. Um, aside for just how to, you know, behave on a rotation, I would say clinical decision making, nothing specific, but just the thought process of clinical decision making is something that also takes a very long time to hone your skills on. And not that we are going to be our experts by any means as pharmacists coming right out of school. However, you still have a leg up on all your other peers. Being able to take in multiple different pieces of clinical information and arrive at one final decision is not something that you can just learn overnight. Um, so having that experience in clinically in making clinical decisions is really kind of an invaluable piece of information that I think not a lot of people applying to med school from pharmacy school really take into consideration. Yeah, I, I love that because. Uh, what they teach you in pharmacy school is not necessarily the diagnostic component of medicine, but they teach you first, second, third, fourth line, you know, treatment regimens and, and treatment algorithms. That is something I feel like, in, at least in my medical education, that's been overlooked to some extent because we focus so heavily on diagno diagnostics. So combining those two perspectives on the medical wards, I think it's going to be just super, super helpful for us. Now, you know, what do you do when this first line product doesn't work or the patient can't take it due to some contraindication? So in, a lot of medical students might sit there and think, I have no idea. I've never heard of these second line drugs versus the pharmacist is like, oh, we have five different you know products we could recommend and here's the, the list of them in order of price. Um, so I think that's gonna be something super, super important. I love that point. All right, so we're coming to the final few minutes of our show today, and I want to ask a few closing questions. So do you think this is kind of you know adding on to what we just mentioned before, but do you think having a pharmacy degree will help with your ability to practice medicine or communicate with patients in the future? So I'll, I'll kind of break that down into the practicing medicine and then the, and then the communication as well. So practicing medicine, I would say definitely. Um, I'm, you'll realize soon enough when you're in medical school that the pharmacology we're taught is extremely baseline. Um, I mean, they're, they're teaching you about ACE inhibitors and they only tell you about lisinopril and don't tell you about the 14 other ACE inhibitors that are out there and their unique pharmacokinetics and all the other things that are just important to know. 
Um, and uh, at least from my experience on in Appies, uh, you'll meet physicians who don't even really have a firm understanding of a lot of that stuff. So having that that breadth and that depth in your pharmacy knowledge will become extremely important um, as you're you know going on your rotations and then into residency and then even practicing as an attending. Um, as far as communicating with patients, I would say that definitely you have a benefit in coming from a pharmacy program. I know personally, I think that if you have any experience in retail pharmacy, I think that will benefit you even more so um, because, you know, if you've been in retail, some of the patients can be difficult is a kind way of putting it. So knowing how to manage that and how to handle people like that, uh, that is, uh, you know, that, that's something that's going to be immensely important because you're not always going to have your patients who love to see you and are happy to be there and just have you go lucky. Um, you're going to know how to deal with the, uh, the, bad, the bad patients, for lack of a better word, as well. Yeah, just having that that temperament is uh, super important, as well as that confidence to approach a patient, do a you know an interview or a history, and then I, I love when you have to ask about oh, their chronic medications that they're taking. Well, that that's super super easy, you know, from having a pharmacy background versus all my you know peers are writing down and scribbling down everything. They're like a tour of a stat and what you know. So it's just a very helpful and useful thing, I think. So I think having the pharmacy background has been influential. Um, so for individuals considering medical school after pharmacy school, do you have any other recommendations you'd like to share with them based on your experiences so far? So honestly, my biggest thing is, is, is if you're on the fence, if you're kind of deciding whether or not you want to go to medical school, if medical school is right for you, I would make sure that it's something you absolutely want to do. And I'm sure Dr. Rutland can attest to this, and really anyone who's applying to medical school, if you want to go to medical school, you want to be a physician, you know it. It's not something that you're maybe we'll see how I go, how things go. Like, like I described in my sort of epiphany-esque situation, I knew it immediately. Once I was in that ICU and I saw those physicians interacting with the residents and the patients, like that was it. Like I was done. Like my pharmacy career was effectively over for the long term. Um, so just make sure that that it's something that you really want. This is a, a long and a, quite frankly, a miserable road, <laughs> but the, the end goal is definitely worth it. Um, if it's what you truly want. Hey, Dr. Grohal is not going to sugarcoat it, <laughs> but um, no, I'd agree. You have to hundred percent be passionate about this, this career path. You have to forego, uh, you know, a, a pretty high six figure income. You have to forego, you know, the relaxation that you could be having all of your friends are finishing up residency or finishing up, um, you know, they they get off, they clock out of work and they're done for the day. And we're sitting here still, you know, in the library after our, you know, 20 hours of studying nonstop. So it, it is a calling, I think, but, um, you know, having the background really helps quite a bit. Yeah. And, and just to, just to add in, I do, I do want to preface and say that, you know, what this, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. Like I'm here because I want to be a physician more than pretty much anything else in the world. Um, so Honestly, like I said, it's just it's just it's just something a desire that you need to have, and a lot of people do. Um, it's it's definitely it's definitely a calling, for lack of a better word. And, and building off that final point, I don't think I asked you yet, but what kind of specialty are you interested in, um, and why? So, um, I would say I have kind of a tier tiers of my list. I would say number one is definitely orthopedic surgery, like I mentioned before. Um, I always I have an I have an interest in surgery, 
like you, I've, I've never actually been in an OR before. So um, I'm looking forward to my first surgery rotation. And I really just hope that I don't dislike it. <laughs> um, I, I am big into sports. I think it would be awesome to kind of have that hybrid between sports medicine and the surgical uh, specialty. Um, outside of orthopedic surgery, I always loved cardiology. I know you kind of touched on this before, but it really was one of my favorite topics. Um, I did an happy rotation at the Cleveland Clinic main campus, which is one of the top cardiac hospitals in the world, and I absolutely loved it. Um, so kind of in between IM and uh, ortho right now. Yeah, exactly. For, um, for those of you who don't know, if anyone's interested in like cardiology, there is a basically transition period where you have to do internal medicine first before you can apply to that particular uh, fellowship versus orthopedic surgery is direct. Um, you just apply into that particular program. Um, well, great. So, alrighty. So we've come to the end of our interview, and I'd, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for their attention and interest in medicine. If you have any additional questions about medical school journey, check out my personal website, www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, Bryce, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, um, so you can send me an email. Um, that's going to be B as in boy, and then my last name, so G-R-O. H-O-L at liberty.edu. Um, feel free to send me an email anytime. Um, also on LinkedIn, um, I think my profile is on the Physician Pharmacist website as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Grohaw. I look forward to seeing where medicine and pharmacy take you. Um, have a great week and best of luck with your step studies. Yeah, thank you. You too.